folks. So it's important to talk about our culture because our Amish culture, because survivors from our Amish culture have been routinely silenced, harassed, spoken over, and denied any form of autonomy. Until you begin to understand that, you haven't begun to understand the Amish culture. And so for that reason, James and I have invited Dr. Lars Stoltzfus right back to have another conversation. And I'd like to begin by sharing an experience that I have encountered quite frequently and often even from ex-plain men and ex-Amish men and sometimes even women, people who haven't necessarily begun to understand our culture. Uh, so I recently had an interaction with somebody where I had, I had kind of laughed and I had said, oh, look, it's another cishet white man that is trying to explain our culture, was this man even Amish? And that resulted in somebody else heckling me and saying, um, well, why do you even care? Because, you know, obviously you're out. Like, <clears throat> I know because I grew up in that insanity, this person says. And I said, I care because it's important to actually allow survivor space to speak it's it's important to talk about our culture so that the survivors that come out of this culture can receive appropriate services and when i say that i'm not just saying like from an lgbtq side even like cishet survivors that come out of our culture are often they're at a loss people don't know how to interact with them appropriately and it results in so much silencing and shaming and just harassment and they get spoken over on a routine basis so with that being said um you know i explained this and this, this person comes right back and doubles down on, you must find something good about the abuse that you went through. And I was like, no, you don't get to tell me that. Nobody gets to tell me I have to find something good about the 15 years of torture and child sexual assault and rape and false imprisonment, human trafficking, whatever you want to It was there. Nobody gets to tell me I have to find the good or the positive or the purpose of that. There does not have to be a purpose in that. He comes back and he doubles down on the, you have to find a purpose. And I tell him to go watch these videos. And then after that, we will talk. I did ask him if he was a survivor of Amish child sexual assault. He never answered that question. And so I'd like to ask Lars, what is that? So there is a concept that a philosopher, Dr. Veronica Ivey, talks about that's called epi ep epistemic <laughs> injustice. And it comes from epistemology, which is basically the philosophical term for how we know what we know. And Dr. Ivey says that one way to harm people, as we've seen, is to, quote, harm them in their capacity as knowers, as epistemic agents. When we systemically exclude people of a particular social identity, such as women, people of color, disabled people, and many intersectional identities, we enact both epistemic and political violence. She goes on to say, when we exclude various ways of knowing, such as treating lived experiences as a criterion of credibility, or when we ignore women for being emotional, we exclude knowers who deploy those ways of knowing, 
And when knowers are excluded for epistemically and politically defective reasons, this causes and contributes to epistemic oppression. Um, and what she's saying here is that when we just dismiss somebody for getting upset, when we dismiss someone for not telling their story in the way that we think they should, we're enacting violence, not only on this person politically, like silencing someone who is a survivor sets back political action to protect survivors, but silencing someone as a survivor also dismisses them as people. It dismisses the knowledge they have from the experiences that they have been through. And silencing those stories means you have a narrow perspective. You have a few voices who are disproportionately loud and they are loud in the way they are in part to continue to silence other people. And so there's this injustice where you have narratives that just don't get told or if they do get told, people tell them to shut up. Oh my God, amen. Yeah. Can I so, ask, is Donald Crable one of those voices in your opinion? Yes. What about yes. Corey Anderson? I would also say yes. I would say that the Young Center tradition, the academic tradition, is a big part of why there aren't more, why there isn't more diversity of narrative, at least in the academic community. Um, every academic field has its celebrities, right? Like there's always these big name people that everybody knows. And for better or worse, these celebrities have outsized influence, not only on how people view the field and its subject matter, but how people actually study what they're studying. Um, so Dr. Sarah Ahmed, she's another philosopher. She's amazing. In a post on her website, Feminist Killjoy, great website, she calls this the, quote, screening technique, how certain bodies take up spaces by screening out the existence of others. If you're screened out, then you simply do not even appear or register to others, end quote. Um, so in my opinion, and in the research I've done, Donald Craybell, who was a professor at Elizabethtown College, he acts as the screener like the gatekeeper for all things that are academically Amish. His work is read by academics. It's cited by academics. It's read by non-academics, cited by non-academics. It's a foundational kind of core of how a lot of folks in the U.S. come to define Amish culture and plain culture. Its accuracy, its ethics are questionable. But there's no denying that he is the big name that people know. So his work, his presence, the epistemic injustice that he does is influential and it's lucrative and it's popular. And it's funded the entirety of the Young Center. Mm -hmm. And not to mention, like, all the things, what, all, all of the programs and things that they have. How much, do, do you happen to know how much money the Young Center, Center goes through? I don't know that. 
I doubt that they would release the details, but I do. I know. It's a, <laughs> it's a well-funded center. I know they have, um, they have a good relationship with the John Hopkins University Press, which is where all of their books are routed through. And I know that they, I think they're doing fine financially because they're able to maintain their staff publicize, okay. do research, um, fund kind of a rotating collection of scholars. Um, so they're doing well. And I'm sure that they get grants for studying kind of an underrepresented group. Okay. So if they're getting grants, where are those grants coming from? I'm not sure, actually. Um, that would be interesting. It would be. That's something that I should look into. And then, like, another thing, let's go back to where you were talking about, you know, questionable um, research. Can yes. we talk about that okay. a little bit? Yes. What's yes. questionable about his research? All right. So the Young Center tradition, there are core scholars within Elizabethtown College, and there are a few kind of affiliated scholars outside of it. Together, they're overrepresented in Amish studies. And they, they not only act as gatekeepers, they built the gate. They maintain yep. the gate. They link arms and they hiss at people outside of the gate. Um, they cite each I, other. I may have been hissed at a few times, yes. Say what, James? I may have been hissed at a few times, <laughs> yes. Right? Well, I, I, I literally pay so little attention to them that if they're hissing at me, I don't know. So... They cite each other and use each other's work, which is fairly common in academic circles. Right. But in this case, it's kind of like an exhausting game of telephone. So as an example of how this looks on paper, it's I could say, well, according to James, who said this thing that Mary said last year, and well, Mary got that information from Lars, who got that information from like a different earlier thing that James said a few years ago. And James said that he heard that from a guy in a grocery store. Don't know any details about the guy, but James did say it. So he knows what he's talking about. Yep. That describes this. At this point, it's a decades long process of what this core group of scholars are doing. Typically, when an academic is writing a paper or they're doing human subject research, they go through an IRB process. So institutional review boards are fairly common across universities mm -hmm. and they make sure that the work you're doing is ethical. That Correct. You are, that you are protecting the confidentiality of the people you're talking to, but also that you have evidence that you've actually done this work. Right. And when you look at the methods section for a lot of Crable's work or Corey Anderson's work or um, like other folks at the Young Center, part of the Young Center tradition, they cite each other. But Donald Crable literally said, well, I've been in this community long enough that I have all of these experiences with people along the way. In no other academic circle is that remotely appropriate for any kind of ethics review. You talk to people. Who? Did you talk to men? 
Did you talk to business leaders? Were you talking to moms in the family? Were you talking to kids? What perspectives were you getting? And then I, I, I have another question. Does he speak PA Dutch? How did he account for the language barrier? It has not been addressed very well. Um, I think because there's a willingness, as he says, of folks to talk to him. Now, no, the people who typically talk to him are Amish men. They're business leaders, they're bishops, they're people in the community who have a reputation to uphold and a reputation to maintain. So they're he's good. not... In that caste system, they're the good Amish families. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he's... Krabel is already talking to people who they might not consciously be enacting epistemic violence or injustice, but Krabel's helping to perpetuate it by talking to the people who are at the top of this hierarchy you mentioned last episode, Mary, the people who have the power. Mm -hmm. And Krabel treats them as having the most credibility. Their voices are the ones that deserve to be listened to. And right, because he's not going to go talk to anybody that's left the Amish. He's not going to go seek out marginalized voices within the community. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, that's who he doesn't want to talk to. Yeah. Has he, has he ever even acknowledged the existence of LGBTQ Amish? He has. There is one paragraph in his co-authored 2013 book on the Amish titled the Amish. <laughs> it's supposed to be the definitive book about Amish people. He has one paragraph on, as he calls it, homosexuality. And in this paragraph, he implicitly condones conversion therapy. So the belief that um, he says that Amish folks have ways of dealing with homosexuality that involve conversion therapy. So Praying the gay away is a shortened version of that core belief that if you work with someone, you can make them no longer be queer or non-conforming or trans. And that paragraph is, interestingly enough, and I believe purposefully, right before the section on child abuse because so often queerness and abuse get linked as a way to paint specifically gay men as predators. And I think that was very intentional on Crable's part and on the author's part to include that paragraph next to one about violence done to children. That's pretty and this awful. Goes beyond, and this goes beyond um, Crable or, um, I mean, this goes, right. there, there's like a, a multi-million dollar publishing industry. Um, and it's not necessarily all Amish romance novelists. <laughs> <laughs> there's various subgenres of Amish, whatever. that get mm -hmm. Reality shows, movies. I think the newest paranormal activity. Yeah. Yeah. Film it's got, is it's that got Amish stuff in it. It's so bad. It's and so remarkable. It's like, I literally well, cannot you know, watch. After my first book of poetry about growing up gay and Amish came out, you know, I was um, 
it received a lot of press, but it was from the gay press or a literary, you know, a literary press um, from the Amish or um, those that that publish Amish fiction in some way. There was absolute silence. What and you're not going to get a you, book of gay Amish poetry published by Mastoff Press or in Pathway <laughs> <laughs> Publishers. Pathway <laughs> Publishers, James. You're not going to be part of a homeschool unit on literary. <laughs> Um, structure. Come on. You did a lot well, of you know, I was hoping that at least once a week the budget would publish one of the poems. <laughs> you should be your community and James. Explore, and we could explore queer liberation together. From the oh, rural my. community of Detroit. <laughs> yes. I bring you adventures. Oh, James. <laughs> but, you know, that does, but that does touch on the, if anybody has anything to add about the topic of how many people make money writing books about the Amish that don't even well, know it, anything about the Amish. I, I have something to add about that is like, number yeah. one, like, you know, these books, media and TV shows, like all the media, even like, you know, our dearly beloved brother, Donald Crable, um, he started a podcast in September where I listened to like six minutes of it, but he's basically glorifying the Amish idea of forgiveness as, you know, something we can learn from them. No, you don't get to, no, stop it. You are again, like what Lars said, he is, he is perpetuating this, this generational violence by doing this and he's glorifying it and so a lot of times when people read these books when they listen to these podcasts when they watch these movies and tv shows which by the way i started sharing with y'all i can't watch these tv shows i literally sat down and i tried to watch one of them with my family because i'm we all wanted to watch something and they were like, oh, look, we can learn about your culture. <laughs> Let me suggest something. If you know an ex-Amish person, do not ask them to watch a TV show like that with you. Because for me, I'm the type of person I'm going to tell you everything that's wrong with every <laughs> single scene. <laughs> well, with that, you probably wouldn't have gotten a chance to breathe. Because there's so much. That's the problem is there was so much. I was like, I can't even, I, I can't watch this. We watched maybe <laughs> 20 minutes, I think. And then it was over. That was it. Um, but what it does, and the more important thing is what it does is it gives people this platform of like, oh, I learned about the Amish here. And then what they do is when survivors of this culture, when people who have survived this generational violence, they start talking about their stories. They start talking about the spiritual abuse. They start talking yeah. about the yeah. psychological effects. Mm -hmm. When they do that, these people crawl out of the woodworks. If they're publicly and openly talking about it and even sometimes people that they trusted they trusted to finally share this part of their story with them um they they attack these people who survived this culture mm -hmm. rather than listening to understand and learn they attack the actual lived experiences of people 
mm-hmm. because they learn and their perception is now being challenged and they cannot mm-hmm. handle that their perception is being challenged. Yes. Right. Right. So when you point out the problem using your knowledge, it makes them uncomfortable. So they want to dismiss your knowledge as inaccurate or unbelievable. And then they also want to make you the problem because mm-hmm. you pointed out a problem. And so mm-hmm. they put all of their bad feelings, they put their uncertainties, they put their discomfort onto your body if you are yep. a survivor. And yep. it harms the survivor and is a way of shutting them up. It's a way of making sure that the status quo remains as it is. Right. And not only does it shut up the survivor, or is it a way of shutting up the survivor? If other people witness that, it shuts up other people that are around Mm -hmm. the survivor. So it's more than just, it's, it's a larger effect than just on one person. Yes. Yes. And in my research, um, a group that I'm actually very interested in studying is white supremacists. And white supremacists use Amish bodies in a fascinating way. And there are similarities between how white supremacists talk about Amish people and how the Young Center talks about Amish people, where it comes from this kind of right-wing Christian, like Protestant perspective, not like an Anabaptist perspective, but this sort of American evangelical tradition of Protestantism that emphasizes purity and purity in like moral purity, virginity, believing in, you know, Jesus as a savior, believing in a literalist interpretation of the Bible, but also purity in genetics that there are these closed communities that because they're separate from technology, because they're separate from this sort of corrupt world, because they're separate from how modern America works. And should we are, should we take a moment and point out that there was some Mennonites involved with the insurrection January 6, 2021? Yes. I had to report some of my family members to the FBI. Yeah, uh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That happened. The Amish to evangelical pipeline is. Okay, so a lot of white supremacists organize online, as does the American right. You have plain communities, Amish communities, homeschool communities within eighth grade education. Not a whole lot of media literacy training. And it's really, really easy for these groups who have been raised in deeply conservative homeschool educational materials, who don't really know the difference between a friend's Facebook post and a Russian bot. And so they get into this accelerationist pipeline where Mm -hmm. they get involved into the quiverful movement because it resembles some of the purity culture of Amishness, or they get into evangelical culture, fall in with the Duggars. And so this pipeline takes advantage of the lack of education. It takes advantage of the shelteredness of community, and it takes advantage of 
this sort of American mythology that surrounds Amishness. Like, oh, you're a pure person. You're, you and your family are the ideal. You're what everybody mm -hmm. wants to be. You represent the best of America. You represent what it means in real time to make mm -hmm. America great again because the white yeah. obsession with Amishness is this false nostalgia, right? Yes. And yes. so they play on Amishness as a way to encourage ex-Amish people to become part of this larger evangelical right-wing movement. And I mm -hmm. think in several cases, it's really, really successful. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that, um, unfortunately, because mm -hmm. you, know, you look at the, the founding, the founding Anabaptist fathers and their, their, their beliefs, mm -hmm. th that's nothing at all like what, you know, what modern, what the people that attended Washington, D.C. last year, what their beliefs would be. There's including, you know, uh, possession of firearms, uh, guns. Um, yeah, that's no, that's a no-no. And yeah. in some communities, they have done a 360 because of the culture that we find ourselves in, the polarization. And you, you, you see a lot of Amish now toting guns around like it's a thing. And it's really quite tragic. Yeah. The whole idea of this God and country, religious patriotism mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. not... Yeah, yeah. So real quick, we'll we'll do this like, and then and then we'll 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 have to go. But real quick, let's just talk about it for a minute. How like some people believe that Amish people don't vote, but let me just point out that I personally lived in five different Amish communities, and in one of those communities, we literally had people who would free of charge take a fifteen passenger van load full of people all day long this person was taking Amish people to go to the polls to vote for free so what do you think would have happened Mary if during that van ride to the polling place one of the Amish <laughs> men had said I can't wait to vote for Hillary Clinton <laughs> you know there was a political action committee during Trump's campaign that was Amish for Trump. That was the name of the political yes, yes. to me. The, the, so, try this, or the, the Republicans try this every election cycle. They try and uh, garner Amish enthusiasm to, to you know, votes. Um, yeah. Bush right. tried it. Uh, Trump tried it. Um, it's really, it doesn't really work. <laughs> I mean, so to a certain extent, some votes, of course, but what, they, what, they're, what they're thinking, it's not going to happen, no. Yeah. Because the Amish bishop is going to reclaim his power on Sunday morning and say, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> we miss him abandoned, James. Uh? We must pray now. <laughs> we must pray now. I do think it's interesting that I have not seen any, any Democrat campaigns toward the Amish. Wonder why that's the case. Hmm? That's a really interesting question. Mm -hmm. I would say that would be because the Democrats don't uh, use religion as an issue. It's not your re your religion is not an issue. Um, whereas the Republicans make it an issue. You know, this is a Christian nation. <laughs> <Yeah>. Really? Really? <laughs> That's really interesting.
But yeah. I do think it plays on these larger stereotypes too. That like, oh, of course, Amish communities are conservative politically. <laughs> and so I think Democrats are just like, it's a lost cause. Whereas Republicans, James, like you said, think, yeah, oh, yeah, this is yeah. an opportunity. Well, and yeah. on that note, do you guys have any parting words this time around? Yes, I would just like to say that I have never voted Republican and I never will. Thank you very much. <laughs> well then, James. That's all I got. <laughs> um, I would like to say a quick um, quote from Corey and Jennifer Anderson's book on... Oh boy, we're in for a treat. It is. I read it cover to cover and... On page 257, they say, <clears throat> today, um, fashion circles in the media have so conventionalized effeminacy that it blends right into general culture. People seldom recognize it, except in extremes fo extreme forms such as transvestism. One reason is that once exclusively homosexual aesthetics have, gasp, gone mainstream. <laughs> and not panic of diversity and difference and exploration, I think just encapsulates all of this epistemic violence and trauma of being afraid, not only of survivors, not only of these alternate voices, but what these alternate voices could represent for any kind of plain community. Mm -hmm. like representing this exploration, this creativity, it's just not allowed. Mm -hmm. Having paintings on the wall, wearing red. Fancy china. You like my red? Oh, and I love your blue hair. Oh. It's, <laughs> uh, it's fabulous, Lars. It's it's very sinful. No, I I yeah, that's very very sinful. I I always want to ask if the bishop approved your hair color today, but I wasn't <laughs> sure if you could appreciate. That. <laughs> Like but, it's, not, it's it's not it's not long yeah. enough. It isn't held back tightly enough. It's, I mean, but it's blue. Even, I mean, like it, it we, grows this way, Mary. <laughs> Mine grows this way too. You see? <laughs> it's what the Lord gave me. This is I the way. Sure okay, look. This is the way the Lord cut my hair, and this is my red suit that the Lord made me. Okay. And on that note, I would like to tell everybody that I feel like you deserve to feel healthy, happy, and whole. And, you know, navigate your life in a way that you feel comfortable and safe. And I hope you're able to do that. And until next time, have a beautiful day.